0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is John Etherton. John is the president of Etherton and & Associates, and it's that time of year. or Actually, it's early this year, or it's even in the same calendar year as the last one. I don't know. It's, so we're going to be talking about um, getting an acquisition update with regard to the FY 2019 NDAA. Um, but first of all, John, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Roger. It's good to be back.
0: Um, and it's great to have you here. So first, let's just start with like the big picture. Wow, it's um, August, and <laughs> um, the NDAA is done. So how did that happen?
1: Well, I think there were a number of issues. Uh, the president is going to sign the bills, as I understand it, on Monday up at Fort Drum. Um, and I've been involved in this, I think, is my 37th or 38th authorization bill uh process uh, since 81 this is the earliest that the committees have ever finished um the conference so in 31 years or 37 so years. 37 yeah, years wow i think probably even, history here being yeah, made yeah yeah it, it, there have been a number of times in the past when the committees have finished the bill before the end of the fiscal year but generally um even then the bill doesn't get signed until october so this is a this is a first I would attribute this to a number of things. I think number 1 um there there if you look at the acquisition provisions for example, they're not there there's fairly robust things in here, but I don't see anything that would be a major challenge to the status quo in a lot of areas and so I think that made it a little bit easier for people to work through a lot of the issues. And I think the bill generally uh with a couple of exceptions did not really take on some really hard issues that would have generated enough controversy to justify delaying it. Um, I think the fact that we have a top line on defense for this year, the number's all been worked out, also made things very easy. The other issues, the Appropriations Committees are moving quickly, uh, and I think that always gives an incentive for the authorizers to move the bill along. And then I also think there was a desire to finish the bill as early as possible to honor Senator McCain uh, since his name is on the bill uh, this year. So I think it was just a lot of things, and... Uh, We're done.
0: Wow. So so there's a lot of time to contemplate what was done. Um, And I guess guess my next question is just, you know, we're, you know, we've talked about this before and you've specifically observed about we're in this on, you were on this like three or four year acquisition reform sort of impetus, kick, whatever you want from the hill. This sort of mark you know, a slowing of that this year? As you mentioned, there weren't provisions that were really... I,
1: I think I wouldn't say... I, I think it was probably a little bit of a lull. I do expect next year uh, to for there to be bigger issues, frankly, in this area that people will want to debate. Um, so it was a little bit of a lull this year. If you look at the bill, the committee's had a number of different concerns. I think Chairman Thornberry's efforts really sort of... He he was interested in especially taking the Section eight hundred nine panel recommendations and trying to take some of the ones from Volume uh, one of their report and trying to implement them. But you I mean, think, GSA's report, yeah, right. or, or not not the GSA report, the report from the Section eight hundred nine. Oh, eight hundred nine. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. on the commercial yeah. item acquisition and, and mm-hmm. cleaning up the acquisition statutes, and a large part of Title eight is devoted to that. I also think that. Um, the House Armed Services Committee and Chairman Thornberry were really interested in trying to look at some other reform issues like trying to downscope the so-called fourth estate in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, I, thought, I
0: always thought that was the press, but that's just me, I guess, the fourth well, estate. Well, yeah, Boy. that's
1: what they call it, I guess, in, yeah. in DOD. But anyway, they, they in any case, there was an effort to try to focus a lot more attention on that, and that was more of a Title Nine issue than a Title Eight issue uh, this year. Um, so I think that... that you know, people were kind of looking at different ideas, but frankly, I think next year we're going to see the final Section 809 report will be out. I think the organization, the reorganization, which was just signed out uh, of uh, the Under of Defense for Acquisition and Technology and Logistics, and breaking that up into the two Under Secretary uh, offices, I, I think all of that was has been relatively recent. I think people are new in their jobs. I think there's a real effort to try to use some of the new acquisition authorities and see what additional things might be needed. How do we rethink uh, major defense acquisition programs in the 5,000 process? I think a lot of that will result in next year. I'm expecting a more robust package of legislative proposals coming out of the Department of Defense. So I think there'll be a lot of different things on the table next year uh, for the committees to uh, work with. Uh, Yeah, and, and we'll have a new Congress too right correct yeah, yeah after uh, the election we'll see kind of how the majority minority uh, wind up if, if it stays the same or if it changes in the Senate or the house so.
0: so um before we go into this let's start examining some of the provisions in this year's NDAA um, I wanted to ask you a couple of, first of all your sense on the reorg um, you know and how that is going at DoD the splitting of L
1: I think we've got the memo uh, that Sec- uh, Deputy Secretary Shanahan signed out, and there's still a lot of work to sort of fill in the positions. In some cases, you have uh, consolidation of organizations, especially in the new Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. Uh, for example, the logistics and the installations and energy were consolidated under one Assistant Secretary yet to be Determined who that is. That sounds fairly logical. Yeah, it, yeah. it is. But it, it's interesting if you look back historically, uh, the separate assistant secretary for logistics and material readiness, and having another assistant secretary for um, environment and installations and energy, um, have really been that structure has been maintained a long time. It's several decades. So this, you know, this is going to be two sort of different enterprises and different cultures, I think that they're going to have to merge together under one set of leaders. And that should be interesting. So I, I think that there's a number of decisions that are yet to be made as to who will be filling the positions, um, what, especially in the deputy assistant secretary positions, how those positions will be filled out. And I would not be surprised if there were some further changes and adjustments with the titles and jurisdictions and responsibilities. So I think this is still somewhat of a work in progress, and I wouldn't really expect to see things reasonably fixed and stable until sometime early next year.
0: Right, and is, 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 it my, is my sense, right, that DPAP is smaller? What was DPAP?
1: It's not exactly clear. Um, I think that the overall, uh, the, if there's a shrinkage in the organization, it really came in the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment Organization. That's where you see a lot more of the yeah. consolidations and, and things like that. So, um, I, I again, I think it remains to be seen uh, what decisions are made on who specific people are and, and the personnel occupying those positions. But I think we're kind of midway in that process. But I think at, at least now um, the department and the organizations have a blueprint that's been approved that they can work off of. Right.
0: So another question, you know, I know there has been this, like, you know, sort of, tidal wave or lots and lots of acquisition prov- provisions in the last three years or so that have to be implemented. Is there any? Do you have any sense on you know there's you the backlog on rolling stuff out? Are they attacking that well? Your-
1: I think there's still a lot of of questions about um, what sort of a, of a process we have for rolling out a lot of these new things. I think that for example this. Deregulation mechanism of eliminating two regulations for every one new one. What does that apply to? How do you work out the methodology for that? I think there's still some questions around that, and what what the agencies need to do to comply with that. So I think that's going to be something that has got to be has got to be worked out. And then prioritizing these things, I think if you, for example, if you go through the FY19 bill that we were just talking about, you'll see in several of the provisions where the uh, Congress has given specific direction. Uh, on a timeline for implementation of a provision. Uh, for example, the intellectual property provision in Section 866, there's a timeline in there. Some of the other ones don't have a timeline. Will that affect the the priorities? I personally expect that we are going to continue to see uh, deviations coming out to implement things that are more near right. term. And I, I just don't see when this all breaks loose and when we start seeing things flowing.
0: Right, because even in the case of... Um... The increase in the micro purchase threshold to ten thousand dollars for civilian agencies you know, the you know the far count the far council whatever told agencies go do deviations right because they couldn't get it into the far as quickly as having people do their own deviations right and we were just talking about changing a number literally right, right. <laughs> in a certain sense, so it's kind of kind of interesting. Hey, John, you know what? We're already up on the first break. Um, but when we come back, we'll start diving into the NDA. And my first area I want to ask you about is yeah, is something near and dear to my heart, Section 846, you know, and uh, with the e-commerce portals from last year's NDAA and um, GSA's implementation plan. And there were some recommendations sent to the Hill. How how did that all shake out? Mm-hmm. Okay. My guest today is John Etherton. He is the president of Etherton & Associates. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today my guest is John Etherton, president of Etherton & Associates, and we're talking about uh, the, to- the acquisition poly pro- policy provisions of the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2019. I want to make sure I mentioned Senator McCain's name in there since it's uh, – you know it's it's named in his honor um, and we're all thinking of him so mm-hmm. and um but uh to dive into some of the provisions uh john let's i mean the one that I get asked about most though i'm gonna ask you about it is you know the sort of follow up to section eight forty six from last year's n d a a and g s a made some recommendations for you know legislative changes coming out of their implementation plan in march. And some of them, or at least one of them, was adopted by Congress, and um, others were not. And there were some other interesting provisions in there related to the e-commerce uh, platform provisions. So I'll um, turn it over to you.
1: Sure. I, I mean, I the when GSA came out with their recommendations in the spring, um, the House Armed Services Committee pretty much picked them up as they were proposed and included them in their version of the bill. Um, I would say the one that... Probably stirred the most conversation and maybe controversy was the proposal to raise the micro purchase threshold for purchases through the e commerce portals uh, from ten thousand to twenty five and I think there was an issue there. people had some concerns about what um, specific legal requirements would be set aside by raising the threshold to that level for those purchases and how that would mesh with other priorities or policies within the administration. Um, but the House, I think, felt pretty comfortable going forward with that. Uh, I don't think it, it was terribly surprising. It was a little bit surprising to me, I guess, that in the conference they, uh, the, when they finished up, they had actually dropped out the micro-purchase threshold increase and continued most of the other things that the House, the house had requested. So um, they've got the language now, which will allow them to adjust the competitive procedures to accommodate purchases through the e-commerce portals. Um, some language on the on protecting the data and, and how that could be used and what it can't be used for. I honestly believe that we will see the proposal on the micro purchase threshold increase again. I think you know I fully expect sure, yeah. next year the administration will bring it back. I th- I think but between now and then, and we've got several months. I think we'll be able to get to the ground truth on what things would be affected by that, what programs, what policies, other policies. Uh, and I think that, you know, it'll all be out there and people can just decide what they think is in the public interest. But I th- I do expect that issue to be back in, in the debate next year. Yeah, that's
0: interesting observation, and I, I agree with you. I expect it to be back next year. And, uh, you know, in the context of it, at the same time, it's interesting. The first time folks saw the $25,000, you know, recommendation is when GSA issued the final report. Um, and, you know, so there wasn't any real, you know— dialog or communication between you know GSA and industry about that proposal what the merits what do it would mean for companies what do it would mean for other pre-existing contract programs all that kind of stuff and I think right now GSA has the opportunity to go through that in this phase 2 market research sort of phase of the of the portal implementation to have those kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. So I do you do you anticipate they'll be out talking to people about that?
1: I don't I mean I don't know what their plans are. I would hope that they would because I you know I think there were a number of issues that were raised that were more questions really than issues about just what would this impact and you know how, how would this affect the, the current suppliers that folks are working with in the agencies and, and the policies and the preferences. So I think that I just think we just need to get all that lay it all out so everybody can see it. And then I think it, it's a much easier matter to decide, you know, is this in the public interest to do this or not or whatever, and we can just go forward on that basis.
0: Exactly. I think, yeah. So hopefully we'll be seeing some communication from GSA to, to have a conversation around those issues. I would note, right, was is it correct that the NDAA did include, though, an increase in the micro-purchase threshold for DOD?
1: Yes. This yeah. Came- now all the agencies are aligned with 10,000.
0: So DOD went from five thousand to ten thousand, right?
1: right. right. Okay. And, I, and that actually was interesting because industry, you know, in, in the trade associations, they asked for it. I think DOD was supportive of it, and the, it was in, actually in both bills. So it was a pretty, it was very non-controversial. Yeah. I think everybody was in favor of it. So I, you know, that's done. And so now, I, I and honestly, I don't think the fact that uh, GSA, you know, failed to get this new authority is going to really impact. You know, the establishment of the e-commerce portals, I don't think they were quite ready to do that anyway. So I, I don't think anything was lost Yes. Uh, in, the, in yeah. this this implementation process by not granting that authority this year. And I think it's a perfectly good subject to have a conversation about next time.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, just real quick, you know, they got a big win though there too. They have the authority to write the rules around it and the transactions go from, you know, up to the simplified acquisition right. threshold, which is now 250. Correct. So they got a, you know, that's a big window there. That's to, a lot to work with. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think
1: And I think it's a lot to work with and to describe and sort of flesh out in terms of, of the next phases of the plan of implementation. So, so,
0: so John, I know one of the areas that you focus on a lot is the intellectual property rights and data rights in, in the procurement and DOD context. and. So, what 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 is of interest in this year's NDAA?
1: I think there are two issues uh, that are of interest, in, and I'll, let me put this in a little bit, a little bit of context. Um, IP issues in general, and especially, we're shifting more and more attention to the world of software, uh, have become you know a, an increasing issue of concern between industry and government as to who's going to get to do what with what over what period of time, and what's to be paid for it, and how it's all to be worked out. Um, and we have seen changes to the intellectual property statutes in Title Ten, Ten USC twenty three twenty and twenty three twenty one over the last several years, and every year in the bill. And of course, we have the Section eight thirteen panel, which is doing their work. Hopefully, we'll see their report here very shortly. Uh, that eight
0: thirteen st- panel fo- is focusing solely, solely on, on any, IP, solely
1: yeah. on the statutes and the regulations around that. Yeah. So we'll we'll hopefully we'll have that information as well. But a couple issues did come up this year, Uh, one in particular which got a lot of attention uh, was language in the Senate bill which would give DOD permission, uh, authority basically to to use um, or have government purpose rights for data in a case where there's a dispute between the government and a contractor over whether uh, more limited rights would apply in that case or not based on the markings on drawings or other information. Um, and there really wasn't much much of a recourse for an industry in the event that after the fact it was established that the um, the rights in fact were the, – the, the industry did, partner did have the ability to restrict the rights. The only way that they could get any sort of compensation was if they could prove that the government had acted in bad faith, which I think is a pretty high standard, pretty difficult one to meet. Uh, and this language was fairly broad, and I the, I think the big concern – Uh, That I heard from a number of folks was that if you allow the government to have sort of government purpose rights for this technical data, and it is released into other players other than the original equipment manufacturer, you you can't put that genie back in the bottle later with any sort of you know uh, remedy. Um, And it was pretty broad language, so there was a lot of conversation back and forth, and a lot of concern about that. Where we ended up was, and I think there's still some will be some issues in implementation on this one. Is that the government has the right to to use um or has, you know more more than limited rights in cases where there is uh legal action at the core of federal claims you know in, in or any of these other forums and so um it's a little more limited authority now um I think that there's got to be some things defined as to what you know what constitutes some of the items that are that are not very well defined in the statute, but we'll see how it all gets played out. This is one that I would say is um, uh, one of the statutes I mentioned earlier where there is very specific direction that this has to be implemented within 180 days, even if a deviation is necessary. So this is one, obviously, where the committees uh, felt there was strong interest and priority and they want to move it to the front. We'll see what the Department of Defense does with this. Uh, So that was one. And the other one was interesting in that um, there was a change in a presumption uh, also in 10 U.S.C. 2321, that an, a commercial item was developed solely at private expense. This presumption had been in place up until 2007, and then there was a change and uh, some iterations of that which basically limited the, um, the presumption only to commercially available off-the-shelf items. It didn't apply generally. Now that the committees have changed it back so that there's a general presumption. It's rebuttable, but there's a general presumption that uh, a commercial item very broadly defined in Title 41 uh, was developed at private expense. So that'll be interesting to see how that one gets implemented. I'm going to be curious, frankly, personally, to see how the DAR Council sort of sweeps up all of these IP changes, uh, whether there's some sort of a comprehensive role that they propose, or whether they take these things piecemeal, or whether in some cases they wait until, you know, we see the 813 report and any further action gets taken. I, I don't know what the plans are to implement these things. There was, for example, a delay uh, in the change in the, I believe it was the FY11 or the FY12 bill. Uh, it, it changed uh, the, the, some of the rules, and it wasn't until uh, four or five years later that we actually saw a proposed rule come out on that. Um, so I, I'm not sure what the timetable will be for implementation, right. but- nor do I think this is the last word – I really do think next year we are going to continue to see the discussion around IP, and, and I think some of that is going to play out in the statutes.
0: Right. Thank you, John. And we do have to take our, our next break, um, and then we'll continue mm-hmm. on looking at some of the key provisions with regard to the NDAA. Uh, I may circle back a little bit on the IP rights. My guest today is John Etherton. He is a president of Etherton & Associates, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today my guest is John Etherton, President of Etherton and & Associates, and we're talking about the FY 2019 NDAA, which, lordy lordy, it's August and it's done. Wow, amazing. So, uh, John, I know you um, talked a lot in the last segment about the data rights provisions and you know the some of the details of them. And I just you know this is sort of on, whether it's this you know the Section Eight Thirteen panel that's looking at you know this whole issue sort of holistically, um, and the ongoing provisions that Congress has made adjustments on over the years. What's the goal here? What's sort of the end game? What what are people trying to accomplish in this area? It's it's such a crucial area to you know to the future capabilities. I think it's department. it's a tr-
1: it's what makes it more sort of an imperative and, and and a little bit difficult right now is that you're essentially working with statutes that were built around the idea of data rights, hardware related primarily, in the context of major defense acquisition programs, and now we have a, a, a sort of a desire to move away from that acquisition model, perhaps, and we're looking at things like rapid prototyping. We're looking at middle tier of acquisition. Uh, much more rapid turnaround of development and deployment of capabilities. You've got the use of other transactions agreements, which essentially have no rules you know, written in stone on IP. And yet at the same time, if you look at what Congress has put in the statute on the logistics side and sustainment, there are very specific rules about what DOD has to retain – as far as their ability to support weapon systems that may be in service for decades. right? So you have this, and we are shifting the focus and conversation more and more away from hardware-related things to software. So I think all of these things are, are sort of bubbling right now, and as the department is designing their new acquisition model, which I think they're in the process of doing, using some of these new authorities really to try to have a much faster cycle time for Deploying capabilities and developing capabilities, um, how do you how does the government you know develop tools or work with tools that allow it to have sufficient control over the technology baseline in their view uh, department's view so I think that we're going to see a lot of conversation around this. Uh, I expect both in the public domain and maybe in a lot of meetings and things uh, between government and industry to try to start sort some of these issues out and i really think next year uh, i expect another round of these kinds of issues but there are we just have imperatives now and we're trying to work with a set of rules and a framework that was really developed around hardware and the major program sort of paradigm and now we've got a different a different model that we're trying to work with so i i think it's going to be it's going to be tricky plus you have continuing evolution of of intellectual property and how it's treated by the private sector and what the commercial models are and and so I think all of those things are really going to continue to drive a lot of discussion around these issues.
0: Yeah, just sort of to me like that. That's a that's just hot, you know the 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 software issue versus hardware, you know, and having to address old rules just gets back into that. It's a balancing of all the interest, right? And trying right. to you know thread that needle to find what you know, and nobody's going to get everything they want, and typically in those. Typically, in those cases, I guess right. is that fair to
1: say? No, I think that's right. Um, I would be surprised if the basic construct in the statute, which is that the rights go to the developer, or the person who paid for this, uh, whether it's the DOD under a contract or there are contractors using, um, uh, you know, their own funds or independent research and development or other indirect money. I think that that construct, basic construct, I think stays. But how you work that in the in the context of the requirements on core logistics and software and some of these other things, I think it becomes a lot uh, a lot more challenging. Right.
0: So, and I know another big area, or big theme this year is supply chain mm-hmm. and supply chain risk. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I think that if you look at the bill, there are a number of provisions, and, and probably one of the more controversial ones was the uh, difference in treatment of the ZTE Huawei issue by the House and Senate. You know, we had one body that Basically, wanted to you know drive those companies out of the U.S. economy, essentially, and and other and the other side basically looked at this in terms of the, you know, just government contracting and and sort of securing the supply chain. It's been interesting for me to see how this issue has evolved. Um, in the past, there was a, a, an access issue that was the main sort of supply chain concern. It was, you know, if, if we have a war, will we have access to things that we're getting from foreign countries? Or we have imports of raw materials or certain things that are critical at various stages in a supply chain. Uh, and how do we guarantee access? We've had the stockpile and other things to try to address that, some of the domestic source restrictions to ensure that we have a you know viable U.S. industry in, in the event that we would be cut off from these the sources. So that was where things started. Now we're having a much broader discussion on supply chain security. We're talking about things like... Um, different equipment that might be in the supply chain in the ZTE Huawei case, where there may be malware or some other compromising uh, things, similarly with weapon systems and, and some of the electronics in the weapon systems and whether that that could be a source of compromise. I think one of the things that is sort of an interesting development in this bill is the fact that there was language put back, I think, in the FY13, FY14, which gave DOD sort of provisional authority to exclude a company from a supply chain based on their internal intelligence without a lot of explanation to either the prime contractor or the sub. Simply, you know, the word would come out You're done. You're, You're done. Yeah. Remove this supplier and replace him with somebody else. Um and that was sort of provisional language. Industry had a little bit of concern with it because of the, the transparency issue. Um but it was it was for a limited period of time. It was set to expire in September well con- uh, congress came back this year and essentially made it permanent and it, 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 wow. it and the the terms and the use of it are largely intact i i don't think that some of the concerns people had necessarily played out in the actual implementation but i but uh, that was one manifestation of this we had the language as i mentioned on the zt uh, huawei uh, issue there also is a new section dealing with uh, ensuring uh, that we don't buy certain materials from so-called prohibited sources, which would be North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, and some others, on for certain materials like co- uh, cobalt, samarium magnets, and tungsten, and things like that, to generate some, um, I think, um, level of work for the domestic industry and maybe stimulate some additional investment. Uh, so, I so this is kind of this become a much broader issue. I think another aspect of this is protecting, um, you know. Um, unclassified information, sensitive unclassified information. And, and there's a pilot program also in Title 10, which would do that uh, throughout the supply chain. So I think this supply chain conversation that we're having, I, I, it, it, the, the spectrum of issues and sub-issues within it is broadening each year as we have the discussion. And I don't think that will necessarily change as we go forward in the next couple of years.
0: So you yeah. see more action next year on supply chain? T-
1: it's possible. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, we're in the midst of, of these trade actions now with the tariffs and things like that. Um, some further research and concern about um, different malware or compromising of our systems, whether it's communications, weapon systems, or what, whatever, uh, but in the cyberspace. And so, yeah, I think we're going to have continuing conversations around this. And there may be additional authorities that the department will seek. Uh, in, in their view, to try to protect the supply chain further.
0: So, and you know, is this is this specific to like the product that's provided, or can it be the people performing the work? Is it all those things, or is it?
1: Yeah. I, again, I think that the spectrum of issues that are, that come under this rubric are the number that it's broadening all the time. So, I think it can be the the protection of information. Uh, within the networks of the, of the suppliers, it can be the the supply chains for weapon systems and protection of that counterfeit electronic parts. You know, was an issue a few years ago. You know that that is a continuing interest. Um, so I think all of these things, and again, I think as new issues are uncovered, uh, new concerns about you know networks or systems or whatever that may be compromised through different means. I think this is just going to be a continuing issue.
0: Well, John, we're up on our. A- break. When we come back, I have one final question about the supply chain aspect of it, Um, and then we can move on to some other other interesting provisions in the NDAA. My guest today is John Etherton. He's president of Etherton & Associates, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is John Etherton. He's the president of Etherton & Associates, and we're talking about the acquisition policy provisions in the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act for FY 2019. Um, and John, are there any other key provisions with regard to supply chain or um, access to information that um, are in there that are, people need, should be aware of?
1: Yeah, uh, let me just mention one more, Roger, and, or two more, actually. Uh, section 1654 and 1655 are um, an effort for, first there's a requirement for the Secretary of Defense to sort of list, give a prioritized list of countries that pose a risk to the cybersecurity of the U.S. uh, and national security systems, the defense systems, and there's a number of different criteria that they're supposed to look at to do that. And then in uh, Section 1655, there's a requirement for all contractors basically to report uh, cases where they have provided source code or other kinds of information to these countries or there's some understanding that they will do so going forward. I mean, there's some limitations on which segments of industry are covered by which of these requirements, but I think the idea here is that the government is going to be insisting on much greater visibility on these kinds of arrangements and and, and Congress is basically imposing this requirement now on DOD. So, um, again... So how, another how, facet of this whole issue on supply chain security. So, how does that has
0: that work? Is it is it just as simple as company X Y Z you know provides the source code to Chinese government? They have to re, and they're going to do government contract work in the U.S. They have to disclose the fact that they've provided that to. The Chinese government, yeah, yeah,
1: that's that's the way I understand it. Uh, so you've got this this uh, reporting requirement as a condition of being responsible uh, offer that you will have to provide this information. Uh, again, it doesn't. In some cases, the requirements apply to non-commercial uh, software. In other cases, there's no distinction. It's it's much broader than that, um, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the companies won't be allowed to. Bid on a, a contract or whatever, it's more of a transparency issue. But it, it does require that the Secretary of Defense, DOD, um, if they perceive that there's a risk from any of this, yes. come up with some sort of plan to mitigate it. Yeah. Uh, so again, this adds another facet to the whole supply chain security.
0: Part. Also, it's going kind to of be kind of interesting, too, that you know the, the government will have a clearer picture about you know, how much of... You know, the, that type of information is being provided to other governments, right. you know, vis-a-vis, you know, you know, our own government's requirements, right? Right. Um. So this is a really tough area, obviously. I mean, there's so many moving parts and, um, and supply chain risk and that sort of thing. You know, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the importance of government and industry working together to address these things. There are mutual interests here, right, obviously. I right. mean, you know— um, but there are also different ways to approach it and different you know, sensitivities, I guess, is a way to put it. So, you thoughts on that?
1: No, I think it's going to be critical uh, to have some sustained dialogue, you know, and, and not just sort of the broader let's talk about policy kind of conversations, but really as these kind of requirements work their way through the process, and it may have to go beyond what is currently provided in the rulemaking process uh, as folks look at some of these things, because I think that, if you look at the sections I just mentioned and, and look at them in conjunction with some of the other supply chain security uh, issues that are raised in Title 8, uh these are – again, it's a lot of things on a very broad spectrum all sort of related to one another. And I think it, it would be really good if there was some sustained mechanism for uh, the government and for industry to sit down and sort of talk through these things because I think industry's concerns – uh, there will be a lot of things related to the types of things that they have to report under the security and exchange and, you know, um, Sarbanes-Oxley, that sort of thing, uh, and and just a lot of things that may not occur on the government side uh, that I think need to be put on the table uh, if you want to ensure a, a good, robust interaction between industry and government going forward. So I'm hopeful that, that they will set up some kind of mechanisms to, to do this uh, that, that really get into some of the details and the meat of this. And and even, I mean, it can be done within the context of the of the rulemaking process through public meetings and things, but sometimes that that can be a very um, constrained, uh, sure. way of discussion and you know well, that sort of thing. So there, I think we're going to have to may, perhaps get a little bit creative. I think we all have to be committed to transparency and having all these things you know that 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 are being discussed out there, so people can see what's being. Put out but I, but I also think there's got perhaps we need a little more flexible approach on this
0: do you think could you see foresee something coming next year and legislatively to try to push that
1: it 's possible, but i haven 't heard anybody put you know see see a strong enough need. I think we 're again as we talked at the beginning, the regulatory process is proceeding pretty slowly. I think that that as people see some of these things start to work their way through the case load uh, of the far council and the dark council, perhaps people will, you know, you'll see more meat put on that, uh, that different kind of an idea. But, and the other thing is, I mean, I I think that that we'll have to also take into consideration that that this is an urgent issue. Yes. Yeah. These are not things that people say, well, let's study it for 10 years and then we can come up with something. I mean, these are things that need immediate urgent action. So whatever is developed in terms of a dialogue needs to have that as a component that, you know, we can actually move and make quick decisions and start to really implement these things to secure the supply chain. For example, the ZTE, Huawei uh, language, which even though it's a little more focused on the government contracting side, still has some broader implications because of the communications and things like that. That goes into effect a year after date of enactment. So we have 12 months to sort of try to figure all that. But there's a lot in there. When you really start to get into the details to sort out, so, it, so it, there's no time to lose yeah. uh, in trying to sit down and work through it.
0: Okay. Well, John, we have like about a couple minutes left. Um, other interesting provisions. One I did want to ask you about is, I know with regard to the authority to do to the determination requirements for multiple award IDIQ contracts to do a single award. Right. There's uh, some change in the language there. You know what was changed in your thoughts on it?
1: Um, yeah, the language basically – the current law requires that when you make a determination to do a single um, – it's not a sole source award. It's basically to use to award an IDIQ to a single source uh, for um, amounts I – don't, I don't know what the current number is, but it was above $100 million in the original – Yeah, it was like Act. 112 or something 112, like that. 112 yeah, yeah, with inflation, uh, that there were a series of criteria and requirements. And this was something, frankly, that, that was not done under the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act when we set up the original – IDIQ authority. This was um, uh, requirements that came later, around the time we were doing the fair opportunity to compete on the task orders and that sort of thing. Uh, when the, the, the Congress felt that there were too many uh, single source awards without yes. justification. so this, so we're t- talking about something that's more recent. Um, but the language now has changed. That it instead of basically having a determination that you only have one source that can reasonably perform the work, now you're you're allowed to do this on the basis that only one source can efficiently perform the work, which is a much lower standard to meet uh, to go uh, with a single source. You know, I think a lot of it, the definition and the details are really going to be what will determine right. how successful this is. Um, and I think we're just going to have to see how it how it plays out. I I know some people were, were greatly troubled by this. I wasn't particularly troubled by it. But again, my hope and faith is in the process of – Fleshing out, you know, how this determination process will work, what sort of market research is required, how the determinations, you know, will be put together. Uh, it, I think a lot of the concern can be addressed in the way that w- works. Yeah, State how State. it's implemented. Yeah, right, exactly. and All the rules around exactly. it. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's an interesting one. What's the di- how is it going to impact multi-board IDIQ, um contracts? You know, their creation and you know, and whether there's greater proliferation of. Single awards, but that again, it's going to have to be shake out in the rulemaking process. Yeah,
1: and I honestly, I I, I don't, I'm not expecting a major sea change with this. There may be some some larger IDIQs that, that this authority is used for, but I would be surprised if we would suddenly see a major shift to more single uh, uh, single source award type right. things. But we'll have to see how it plays out. And obviously, the they'll have to be a rulemaking for this. It's not a self implementing law. I would just say in general, it's been interesting to me, uh, we were involved in creating the IDIQ authority largely under uh, the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, how much it has become like another form of a fairly prescribed process with requirements for competition and other kinds of things. And and at the time, we thought we were setting up something that was more flexible. So there have been more and more requirements by Congress sort of layered on it over the years on the... uh, uh, So, you know, we'll we'll kind of see how that works out. But I I, I think the devil's going to be in the details on this one.
0: Right. Well, John, you know what? We're already up to the end of the show. I mean, we could do two or three shows on this stuff, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank my guest today, John Etherton, President Etherton Associates. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. and federalnewsradio.com.
2: To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night.